1: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Travel can often be approached as just another consumer good. Travelers quickly dive in and out of a place, check off the things they want to see, harvest the requisite pictures to prove they were there, and wear their trip as a status symbol. My guest, Rolf Potts, thinks there's a better way to approach travel. After exploring the world for years, he wrote a book called Vagabonding, which laid out the practicalities of how to execute long-term travel. 20 years later, he's back with a new book, The Vagabond's Way, with reflections on the more philosophical side of that kind of travel, which you can take on any type of trip. Today on the show, Rolf explains the vagabonding ethos, which involves slowing down, being open to surprises, and really paying attention to your experiences. He first discusses how taking an overly romantic view of travel can actually diminish the enjoyment of traveling. We then turn to the idea that seeking to take a more authentic approach to travel shouldn't mean trying too hard to differentiate yourself from the quote-unquote typical tourist and how to approach stereotypical tourist stuff with a nuanced view. We discuss how to use the idea of pilgrimage beyond its religious connotations as a pretext for choosing places to visit. We also delve into how to deal with the culture shock that can come both from visiting a new place and returning home from a long trip. We end our conversation with how the attentive, adventurous attitude which underlies the vagabond's way can also be applied to exploring your own backyard. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awimis vagabond. Ralph Potts, welcome to the show.
0: Glad to talk to you, Brett.
1: So you are a travel writer and you've written a lot about a travel lifestyle that you call vagabonding. And you got a new book out called The Vagabond's Way. It's 366 meditations on wanderlust, discovery, and the art of travel. So it's one of these books you can just pick up and read a passage a day. It's really nice, really quick hit. So let's talk about vagabonding. How do you define what is vagabonding and how does it differ from a, just like a two-week vacation somewhere?
0: Yeah, vagabonding is about sort of intentionally taking time off from your normal life to travel in earnest, not necessarily as a vacation or a consumer act, but as a part of your real life, not as an escape from your life, but as an escape into your life. And long-term is a big factor in this. It's the idea of traveling for a year, or if you don't have that much time, six weeks or six months, but basically Giving over a time in your life to travel and learning from that experience and broadening your life and sort of using that journey as a way to see your life options and to educate yourself about the world's riches. So
1: what's your experience with Vagabonding? How did you get started?
0: Well, when I was young, I, I didn't know that travel was something you could just make happen. You know, I grew up in the middle of the country in Kansas, which is where I'm still based. I didn't really know that many people with passports. I thought that travel was something that you did at the end of your life uh, or at the end of your working life when you had when time was given to you by society. But my grandfather was a Kansas farmer, worked harder than anybody I knew. He started farming at age 15 when his father died, had an eighth grade education, super smart guy. Around the time that he was given his retirement, around the time that he was able to enjoy his time in a non-work way. My grandmother, his wife, his true love, got um, Alzheimer's disease. And so when I was a teenager, when I was young, I I saw in a very heartbreaking way that life doesn't just give you time. If, If I was gonna travel, I would have to create my own time to travel. And so in my early 20s, I worked as a landscaper for almost a year, saved up all my money, kitted out a van and traveled across America for eight months and really had this life-changing experience, I realized that travel was not as difficult or dangerous or expensive as I thought it would be. And I realized that travel is something that anybody can give to themselves. It doesn't, it's not necessarily something that you buy like a consumer act, but it's something that you make time for, whatever your means are. And so one thing led to another. I moved overseas. I started teaching English as a foreign language in Korea. I started writing about travel and I traveled across Asia for two and a half years. And that's when I sat down and, and wrote the book, about that process of living through Time Wealth, which is now almost 20 years old. And I've been talking about it ever since, and I don't get tired of it.
1: Are you still taking extended travel trips?
0: I am, in a different way than I was when I was younger. And one great thing about travel is that it can manifest in different ways at different ages, and different things interest you, even in the same place. So this summer, I traveled for six weeks to Paris, where I teach a writing class each summer, and then also to Norway, a place I'd never been to before, but my wife has cousins there. And it's really fun to see Norway through the eyes of my wife's family. It's something I, I don't have any connection to the immigrant sides of my family. And so seeing Norway through a very personal lens was fun for me. And then we went to the Faroe Islands before we came home. And so that was a six-week trip, and that counts as vagabonding too.
1: So in the book, you're trying to encourage this idea of not treating travel as a consumer experience. You know, There's this idea you hear out there. It's like, well, instead of buying things, buy experiences. But you're still approaching things as a consumer When you're buying something as an an experience. So, what are the benefits of your approach to travel? I mean, what have you gotten out of these extended trips you've gone on? You know, how has it enriched your life? And when you talk to people, like, what are the selling points you give them to your approach?
0: Well, this kind of travel allows you to slow down because rushing through any experience in life is a certain way to to miss out on its nuances and to savor it and, and to really enjoy it. So, in giving yourself, say, a year to travel, you don't necessarily need to go to every continent in the world, but maybe you can spend a year in a handful of places in a way that, that really allows you to be slow and be still and enjoy those places. You know, it's funny, I've been hosting writing classes in Paris for many years now, and a lot of times my friends or my students, they'll come and they'll get frustrated at how slow the wait staff is at restaurants because they want to get out and experience Paris. You know, they, they, want, off, they want to get out and tick off the things on their checklist. And I used to be that way too. But then, then what I realized is that you are experiencing Paris by having a very slow lunch. You know, French people don't rush through lunch to get it out of the way that is a very specific pleasure in their day. And it's not until you can relax and enjoy a three hour lunch where the wait staff is not going to bring you the check until you ask for it. And they're gonna be very careful in in asking you recommendations because that's their job and they take pride in that. I use that as a metaphor because that slowing down is something we sometimes forget to do even at home to to have full life experiences. And so travel really taught me that, long-term travel especially. So I think a lot of people, when they think about extended travel, they
1: have this romantic view of it and they think, well, you know, that the golden age of travel is over, that was like something that happened in the, the 1890s or the 1960s, with Jack Kerouac. It's not as romantic anymore because you got Yelp and you got these travel reviews, you got social media that's influencing people to come to these locations and everyone's got their smartphone out, taking a picture. You disagree with this notion that traveling is no longer romantic. Why is that?
0: Well, I think this has always been a part of the travel conversation. You know, years ago, when trains started going across Europe, people enjoyed that convenience, but they also complained about how it sort of took away from the experience, from the immersive experience of going slow, going on foot, or going by wagon. And so I think if you read travel literature going back to the early 19th century, actually the 18th century, lots of people have declared that travel was over, that travel is ruined, right? So for as long as we've been traveling the world as people, people have been assuming that, that this place was more perfect a generation ago. And maybe there were certain advantages a generation ago, but I think it's it's easy, as I say in The Vagabond's Way, the golden age of travel is always right now. That it's easy to fetishize the presumed purity of previous ages when in fact this moment is all we have. And, and someday I actually quote the anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss, who says, I may complain about the impurity of the cultures I see now, but a hundred years from now, another traveler may express frustration at the, ex- the reality that I'm seeing right now, but in failing to see. And so I think that's a good, that's good to keep in mind that in, 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 in less than a hundred years, in 20 years, in 10 years, people might be looking back to the moment right now in a way that feels pure to them when in fact... Now is all we have. So yeah, I do try to s- discourage that cynicism that suggests that travel was better in a long ago time and to embrace the, the romanticism and the and the beauty of the moment we have now. And you also talk about how over-romanticizing travel can get in the way
1: of having a good travel experience. How so?
0: Well, I think we often it's it, it's an expectations versus reality thing. And I think for all the preparation we do before we travel after a week on the road, you're way smarter than any information you could have gotten from a computer. If you don't allow yourself to adapt to the real world as it is, as opposed to the filtered world, you're going to be selling your travel short. Oftentimes in cross-cultural situations, you're looking for the tribesmen wearing traditional clothing in this part of Africa. You're looking for these ancient art traditions in this part of Papua New Guinea and you feel like you're being cheated if the, these people are wearing blue jeans and uh, and using smartphones. When in fact, I think human cultures have always changed and it's actually it's it, it's truer to those cultures when those people they might be interested in art traditions, they might have some clothing that is traditional, but all culture is flexible and Genes and smartphones do not ruin a culture. It's just you're discovering that those cultures are more complex, more modern, more changing than you would have assumed before you left home. So I think if you're always judging your travels through those two-dimensional stereotypes by which you thought they would be, then you're going to be selling it short. I think you have to be humble as a traveler and realize that the world can surprise you. And that's the great thing about travel is that regardless of what you planned, it will surprise you in, in ways that can be amazing.
1: Is that an American phenomenon to treat like travel, like we expect it to be like, it's a small world at Disneyland.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that goes into the consumer experience that travel, like they, they used to complain about glossy magazines. Now they complain about Instagram. It's like, the beaches are always empty, you know, the cocktails are always full. There's sort of this perfection that is a part of tourism marketing, which is fine. There's great experiences to be had on the on the road, but those expectations are never exactly like it happens in real time. And so I think sometimes when we go with a bucket list of sightseeing activities, that's fine. I have nothing against bucket lists, but sometimes it's those, those uh, subtler things that surprise you that are cooler than than any Instagram sunset photo that was probably faked anyway it was probably had 10 people in line behind the person who took that Instagram photo
1: well another point you made i thought was really interesting is to this idea that cultures are complex they're always changing and how how the cultures can respond to travelers right they they see uh-huh. what travelers want right? And this is part of their economy. And so in some countries, right, in Africa, where they're wearing blue jeans and using smartphones, they'll actually have like places where you can go and get your picture taken with the guys, you know, in grass skirts or whatever, and like the typical tribal wear, because they understand that's what people want. And that's part of their economy.
0: Yeah, social scientists have talked about this. There's different phrases to call this, but and actually, as far back as the 70s, like a governmental minister in Tanzania is like, yeah, we created this tribal village. It's where the tourists want to go. It might be fake, but it's less of a hassle than tourists wandering through villages asking where the real Africans are. (laughs) When in fact, real Africans are the guys in blue jeans, you know, Um, and I think that's, that's an ongoing challenge. I think people always have this idealized image of how things should be, but in a weird way, it can be dehumanizing to look for the person in the most traditional garb as the, quote, authentic person. When in fact... You know, everybody's authentic, you know, the real, everything's real. And you just have to understand that the world is so much subtler and more complex and intermixed now that sometimes I read a chapter, one of the chapters in my new book is about how we often experience other cultures first through pop culture, right? And so if you're a rugby fan, you might, be, you might know more about Fiji or Australia than your average person. If you like anime Japan, if you like K-pop, you might know more about Korea before you go there. And that's a great thing and it's cool that we, we're sort of borrowing from each other culturally these days. But if you think that there's this absolute way that Koreans or Fijians have to be, then that's not really paying attention as a traveler. And I think The Vagabond's Way, The Vagabonding Ethos is really about paying attention and listening and asking questions before you take pictures, because one of the gifts of travel is, to, is seeing how complex and, and interrelated the world is. So you mentioned this idea of tourists, right? How tourists... Can like, it feels like sometimes it feels like a tourist
1: can ruin things. And so you have this, there's this idea amongst people who are like, well, I'm going to be a real traveler and I'm not going to be a tourist. You think that distinction is not very useful. Why is that?
0: Well, I think it glosses over the fact that there were, that we all outsiders in these new places. And it's funny, I've been talking about this for 20 years, ever since vagabonding. I talk, I try to diminish the travelers versus tourist dichotomy and vagabonding. Simply because it's sort of this this nightclub ethic where you're trying to be cooler than the other people in this very small space. Whereas to the people in the host culture where you are, you know, you all look the same. You know, one guy might call the other guy a tourist, but to the, to the host culture, it's just an American or just a British person or, or whatever. But oddly enough, even though I've been trying to downplay this distinction for years— people just, they're trying to compliment vagabonding or the vagabonding ethos, and and they'll say, oh, it's about how to be a traveler, not a tourist, right? And it's like, well, okay, I mean, let's just try and be better travelers in relation to ourselves instead of trying to be cooler than the next guy over. And I'm all, you know, a lot of the stereotypes attached to tourism is people being rude or culturally insensitive, and I think those are bad things. But it takes more than just differentiating yourself to leave yourself open to a place so i really try to downplay that comparison that happens among people who are all tourists basically that we're all we're all tourists of a sort some of us do it a little bit better but at the end of the day we're all outsiders and that we should be humble about that too
1: and then you made this point that was interesting is that when you're vagabonding or you do sort of this extended travel looking at the tourist economy in a nuanced way is one of those, I don't know, refreshing insights you can get when you take that slow, long-term approach to traveling. You just see this, well, this is also part of this country's culture as well. And it's interesting to see how the the culture interacts with the tourists.
0: Yeah, and it's and sometimes tourism can be bad for places, especially when there's tourism overcrowding it over. It sort of superimposes a, a service economy on a place that might be better served by more of a mom and pop economy. But, you know, it can be weird how tourists bring their ideas to a place. I use an example in the book about how there was a TV show in China that showed the French lavender fields. And so a lot of Chinese tourists started coming to France to take pictures in front of lavender fields and the French people weren't really sure what to do with them. And so they sort of bent their local economy to have lavender massages and lavender products. And, and weirdly, even though there was sort of an awkwardness to it, I think it ended up being good for the, the economy in that part of France. And it's happened in other parts of the world too. I, I write about in the book, uh, there's a part of Panama that used to be just sort of this extractive plantain economy where the, the tribes people in this certain region would get hard currency by exporting Plantains down the river, when they realized that they could host tourists in their own community and sort of share their traditions in a way that outsiders would pay for and buy souvenirs and things. Tourism actually diversified their economy in that place. And in other parts of the world, Papua New Guinea as well, art traditions have been revived. Uh, Bali is another example, by tourist interest in these Local traditions, and so that's part of the complication or the complexity of the travel experiences that I was talking about is that sometimes if, if practiced mindfully, you can really support communities by just taking an interest in and in spending time there and using local guest houses and buying souvenirs and eating at local restaurants and and listening and, and engaging
1: and this, it can all that dynamic can also happen here in the United States, so my family went to a dude ranch in Wyoming this summer and what I thought was interesting a lot of the guests were from South America there's like a big family from Germany and I later learned that Germany in Germany cowboys and indians are like a really big deal and so these guys came to the United States to this dude ranch they just wanted the cowboy experience like they just thought that this was a legit cowboy experience and you know I was thinking well no probably I know some cowboys it's this is not it but I mean I when you talked about that it made me think of that experience I had at that dude ranch
0: yeah, and, and I've been using a lot of international examples, but the same thing happens locally too. Americans can take uh, stereotypes to dude ranches. And in fact, sometimes I'm from Kansas. I know that you're from Oklahoma. Kansas is not a very touristy place. It's a place people mostly know from stereotypes. And if it's not the Wizard of Oz, it's some sort of political generalization. And so sometimes they really, when people visit me in Kansas, they ask questions that feel naive, You know, that that, that are sort of through the lens of, you know, sort of this stereotype that Kansas has cowboys or that it's it's this very conservative and flexible place when, in fact, those are just stereotypes from outside. You can find those stereotypes, but it's not necessarily that way. And I actually talk about, you know, Germans have been interested in cowboy culture since the 19th century when, uh, actually, I, I use a word in the book for it. I I would mess up the German pronunciation, but it basically means Indian enthusiasm. And these German, they basically read these pulp fictions about the Wild West, that were very popular in Germany. But those pulp fictions were written by a guy from Saxony, right? You know, he hadn't been to the United States. He'd just read cowboy novels in English, and he wrote German versions, which were very popular. And so for 100 years or more, Germans had been coming sort of encouraged by the stereotypes from this pop culture vision of the American West. And they, they come to the U.S., and they sort of demand to see it in a way. That, and that has bent... Actually, in the United States also, you'll see dude ranches, you'll see Navajo gift shops that are really sort of catering to stereotypes of what those places are like, more so than what day-to-day life is like there. And so uh, that's one thing I try to encourage in the vagabonding ethic, be it in Arizona or the other side of the world, to really slow down and let your expectations take a backseat to what you're seeing before your eyes and to to let inquiry rather than stereotypes influence what you're going to do there.
1: Okay, so it sounds like overall, don't write off the touristy stuff altogether. And also, like, don't try to outcool your fellow traveler, because that's just not a a good mindset to have going into something. And also, you know, also the stereotypical tourist stuff can be fun. That's why you don't want to shut yourself off to it completely. It can also be good for the local economy. But then also at the same time, like see the stuff, see the touristy stuff in a nuanced way. Like don't go into it with your preconceived notions. Try to try to see what's what's there. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So, how do you pick a place to travel to? Is
0: it just like uh, if you got that wanderlust for a specific place, you would just follow that? Absolutely. I, I think this is something that can be overplanned. Sometimes people people are trying to figure out. There's this language in the travel industry. Oh, this place is hot. You know, this place is trendy. This place is the the place to be. Well, that's that's kind of a bad decision. You know, to choose your travel. Plans over, right? If you feel an urge to go to a place, you know, I I talked about Fijian rugby before. Like, if you if you love watching uh, Fijian rugby, well, go to go to Fiji, talk to people. Fijians love to talk about that sort of thing. Just sort of follow those instincts, and and oftentimes there's a sort of two dimensional inspiration that like we love. We associate travel with the Eiffel Tower. So we want to go to Paris and see the Eiffel Tower. That's great. I was, I hung out with my wife under the Eiffel Tower this summer. It was fantastic. But what's beyond that? You know, so I think in a way, your, your input, your reason for going to a place is less important than what you do when you get there. And I think as much fun as you can have under the Eiffel Tower, wandering off into those neighborhoods and sort of following the smell of a patisserie or hearing the, the sounds of a, of a music festival or just allowing yourselves to be surprised and humbled by a city that is going to be rewarding regardless of where in the world you go and oftentimes people complain about other tourists in tourist attractions and it's like well that's fine but just go to a place that isn't a tourist attraction you don't have to tra- you don't have to travel that far off the tourist trail to find a place that is more authentic to what you thought this place would be I think, allowing yourself to be flexible wherever you go sort of absolves yourself from having too much pressure on where you go go to a place because it it captures your imagination and then whatever happens there is why you went there
1: well another you know, point you make in the book that i liked was you can use these this idea of pilgrimages to help provide some structure for your travels so how have you used pilgrimages or have you, how have you seen people use pilgrimages in their vagabonding
0: well i, I think you don't set limit on pilgrimage because there's there's grand pilgrimage traditions in all of the major world religions and they've actually created a, a lot of a big body of literature. but your pilgrimage can be like going to the St Andrews course in Scotland because you like golf right you know it, it can be going to a, a candy factory in Ohio that manufactures your favorite candy bar that basically these pretexts are chances for you to go to a place that has really blown your mind. Like I've never properly been to Kenya. I I was only in in Kenya for less than a day, but I grew up being a runner, and some of my running heroes were Kenyans. And so when I do go to Kenya, it will in part be a, a pilgrimage that honors my young self as a runner who really saw this place as a country of excellence that produced people who could run faster than other people. And so I think my my future travels to Kenya will probably be pegged to that, and that's a pretty good reason too. So really a pilgrimage can be through the lens of anything that you love or are devoted for or even interested in. And so that can be popular culture, that can be old traditions, you know, that could be Muay Thai and going to Thailand. It can be almost anything. And what the pilgrimage does, it's it's a pretext to go. It's a pretext to have the journey and the experiences that happen along the way. Even people who travel with the idea of religious devotion, part of what makes arriving at that you know, Jerusalem or Mecca important is what happens along the way. The the new experience of life and the new um, self-sufficiency and surprise that happens along the way, that's the gift of the pilgrimage, be it for religious reasons or for whimsical reasons.
1: I've got two pilgrimages that I've been developing in my head. The first one oh, is, I want, so I'm a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt. So I'd love, one of the pilgrimages I'm putting together is visit the places that he visited. In the United mm. States. So I've been to his birthplace, but I haven't been to Oyster Bay where he, he lived. There's places here in Oklahoma that he visited uh, that I'd like mm. to go check out, go to the Badlands. And that would be great to do. The other pilgrimage that I thought I've been putting together is my favorite book is Lonesome Dove. And mm. I thought it'd be fun to follow the Lonesome Dove trail that was set out in the book, but like follow it like today and see what that's like.
0: Yeah, well, actually, that I, I love to hear that kind of thing because lonesome dove is that uh, Larry McMurtry? Yes. Yeah, well, he, there's a specific town in Texas, I forget the name of it, where he had he owned a bookstore with like thirty thousand books. Archer City. Yeah, Archer City, and so that can be a part of that pilgrimage. That. You are going through those fictional destinations, uh, you know, in this work of fiction, and you know, again, I'm from Kansas. People have gone to Dodge City for generations because of the TV show Bonanza. I think, and why not? You know, what you discover again is more important than what brought you there. And I, I love the, the Teddy Roosevelt one too, because because that could be an international trip as well. Yeah, um, because he had a very famous trip to Brazil. He had very public trips to Africa, and you could, you could probably spend the rest of your life trying to travel in the footsteps of Teddy Roosevelt. And so I love it. I, I, I love and I encourage listeners to think well what you know what book, what TV show, what anything excites me and then go to that place uh, go to that place for that reason. I mean a lot of people go to Tunisia because of Star Wars. Why? Well, Tatooine, the Desert Planet is named after a town in Morocco, right? And, and actually they, they filmed a lot of uh, Star Wars in Morocco. And so people go there. People go to New Zealand for Lord of the Rings, right? They, they go to Dubrovnik for Game of Thrones, which sounds silly on the face of it. But I think if you can, you know, if you can enjoy your 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 fanboy trip or your pilgrimage within this framework, but also allow yourself to be surprised and listen and slow down and ask questions, then you'll get so many more gifts than 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 the parameters of the pilgrimage itself. What's your take
1: on travel photography? Because I think a lot of people—that's the big reason why they go. They want they want the pick. Like, why do we have this urge to catalog? our travel? And how can we do it in a way that it, so it doesn't get in the way of our experience?
0: That's a good question. And, and it's a big challenge now, especially now that, that photos are so easy to take. Susan Sontag wrote a book called On Photography in 1977, which is before the smartphone, which is so prescient and so smart in regards to how... She talks about how we put the camera between ourselves and an experience. You know, if in doubt, the traveler will raise their camera instead of, you know, really engaging with a, with the a place. Well, now it's even it's far easier than 1977 to do this. I also talk about how the notion of the picturesque goes back to a minister called William Gilpin in England in the late 18th century, who wrote this treatise basically arguing that the visual sense was the most important and that we sh- travelers should should seek the to capture these these images in their minds. Well. About a generation after he wrote that, they invented the camera. And suddenly you could literally do on paper what he was encouraging people to see in their minds. And travel has become this very visual thing. We have all five senses, but we usually just see it in a visual way, which is fine. I take a lot of photos myself, but still we have this, maybe now more than ever, we're tempted to put a camera between ourselves and that experience. And oftentimes that comes at the expense of true engagement with the culture. Like oftentimes there's an ethical component to this because you'll often take pictures of people you don't know without talking to them, without engaging them. You're sort of just harvesting these stereotypical pictures from a place In Africa or Eastern Europe or or wherever, where people don't necessarily look like you. And you're sort of objectifying those people through your camera, because instead of engaging with them and sort of getting a sense for who you are, you're again, placing the camera between yourself and the experience. And this happens quite a bit in social media too, you know, that often the Instagram stories we see, the Instagram pictures we see are sort of staged experiences that have been staged for the camera more than... They are an interaction with place. So I don't want to condemn using a camera as you travel because I use mine a lot myself, but I do want to encourage being thoughtful and being more dynamic about how you use the camera lens to navigate the travel experience.
1: That point about how travel is, it's, it's more than just visual. There's a, we use our other senses as well. I've noticed this. So I lived in Tijuana for a couple of years and in certain parts of Tijuana, like the, the, I don't know how it is now. That was like 20 something years ago. The utilities aren't well-developed. Sometimes they they just build houses, shacks, wherever. And so you don't have any infrastructure like plumbing. And so in some of these places you'd have just black water going through the street and there's like a smell to it, right? Y'all and. And every now and then, like I'll catch a whiff of it, if, like I'm driving by the sanitation facility here in Tulsa, you catch that, and I I catch a whiff of that, and I'm immediately taken back to like walking the streets in Tijuana, or there's like a you know certain types of house cleaning products that used in Mexico, and I'll be in Walmart, and Walmart now here in the United States, they'll have sections where you can buy stuff you can get in in Mexico, right? That because there's a lot of uh Latin Americans that live in the United States. And also with that, and I'm immediately taken back to like some grocery store in in Mexico. I mean I I I wouldn't have had that if it was just if I just focused on my my sense of sight for my travel experience.
0: Absolutely. And this this ties into uh Again, what Byung-Chul Han, the philosopher, said about the scent of time—that you can't fast forward smell. Smell is a great, a great sense. You know, you can probably fast forward through this podcast. You can fast forward through your Netflix movies, but you can't fast forward scent. Scent demands patience and, and being there. And it's also very associative. It's it's very much a memory trigger. And I love that. You know, I spent two years in in Korea when I was younger. And when I'm in a grumpy mood, my wife will will fix me Korean food because it's sort of my comfort food. And so that's another that's another sense, taste you know which which takes smell into account too but just the idea that the eating kimchi or eating bulgogi will suddenly bring me back to a very specific time in my life i think scent food is something that we all seek out as travelers and so that's a pretty common thing that's like sight there's sightseeing people also sort of travel uh, according to their stomach, but smell is a great thing. I, I love that you have associations with Tijuana through through cleaning detergents or even bad smells. I remember the first time I went to the tropics, it was in the Philippines, I stepped off the plane and I knew I was in a new place internally because it smelled like no place I'd ever been before. And the complexity of smell in a place like Manila in the Philippines was unlike anything I had, had ever experienced. And so there's a real joy for me in traveling in the tropics simply because of the smell.
1: When you're traveling for long periods of time and you, you're outside of the tourist areas, you're, going to, you're actually going to bump up against the cultures as they are, not as you maybe you, th- you think they are, this romanticized version. How do you deal with that culture
0: shock? Well, you embrace it and, and you realize that it is culture shock. I think sometimes one neurosis within culture shock is that this new culture is doing something against you. It's trying to make your life inconvenient or it's, it's it's actively giving you anxiety. When in fact, you're just in a place where everything is a little bit different. And so I don't think there's a quick fix to, to culture shock. You know, I just talked about Korea when I first got there. It was very, I I felt anxiety a lot when I was first there because I wasn't really sure how, how things worked. And so I think patience and slowing down is is really a good way to deal with culture shock and to know that the longer you stay in a place, the more comfortable you'll get with its otherness and then suddenly you'll be learning things that you had no idea that you were going to learn before you went there. You'll be going to the convenience store rather than the tourist restaurant and realizing that a convenience store in Japan or in Sweden is completely different than the one back home. And then suddenly you're having this, again, this gift of travel, you're finding these experiences, maybe by working through the culture shock, you're realizing how much human cultures are similar but also how they're different and how interesting those nuances are. And those are the kinds of things that you'll savor. I mean, who would have guessed that after going to Tijuana, you would later get sentimental from the place through cleaning the detergent or sort of a rotting smell. But that happens. And again, that's that's it's not often put in tourist brochures, but it's really a great memory that comes out of travel.
1: So let's talk about coming home. So you say you're gone for, let's say, a year in a different country. What challenges do you have when you're coming home from a different culture for a long period of time?
0: Uh, Well, culture shock, you know, we've talked about culture shock in the context of going to a new place. There's sort of a reverse culture shock that can come when you, when you come back home, because I think on the road, time is experienced in a different way. Everything is new. Neurologically, your your hippocampus is, is working in a different way because you're solving problems constantly. You're seeing new things constantly. You don't understand everything. So you're almost in a childlike mindset. I think it's easy to forget how open to everything children can be. And then suddenly you're back home and you feel changed. You feel like each day, should be exciting. And, you know, your friends are living these lives of routine and not to knock those lives, but because they've been having a different experience. And so oftentimes you try to superimpose that travel high at home, and that can lead to disappointment, and it can lead to culture shock. And I think you there's sort of a re-entry process when you get back home that involves some of the same tools. You know, don't, don't judge your friends back home just because they're living in a different way, just like you don't want to judge the people overseas who are living a different way. But just realize that you can quietly talk about your travels in a way that doesn't sound braggy, that you can take that travel attitude back home. You can look for surprises, which is a gift of travel in your own home. You can um, look for permission to Slow down and live in a more interesting way and really embrace the present in a way that happened overseas. Well, you don't have to save that for home. One fun thing I did during the pandemic when I couldn't travel overseas is I went for a 22 mile walk with my wife to a town here in Kansas called Little Sweden. And it was really fun. It was, it was really fun to experience so much at a place I thought I knew well and arriving at a place on foot was so different than driving there, which I've done a million times. Yeah. So I think there there are tools. I I think it's, it's never easy to transition back home. That's always going to be a little bit of a shock, a little bit of a letdown, but if you can keep that open hearted, open-minded attitude of travel, when you come back home and sort of reintegrate its lessons into your home life. That's sort of a way of not ever letting the the journey end.
1: Yeah, you have a chapter that I liked, avoid being the pretentious returned traveler. I think we've all met that guy who comes, you know, went on the trip and he comes back and they're like, "Well, in Sweden, they do it this way." And you're like, "Okay, yeah. Yeah, Jeff, we get it. And you went to Sweden." And it's funny, this has been a thing for a long time. You you had this quote from Adam Smith, hmm. the economist, and he he wrote this about Britain's young aristocrats who went traveling. And he said, the tra- this is done in 1776. The traveler commonly returns home more conceited, he wrote, more unprincipled, more dissipated, and more incapable of any serious application than he could well have become in so short a time had he lived at home. So this the, the whole pretentious tra- return traveler has been a thing for 250 years.
0: It has, and it'll it'll probably never end. And I think one thing that happened during that time is that travel is seen as a, a status object. It's sort of a lifestyle accessory, going back to the days of the aristocratic travelers of the 18th century. And so that, in a way, it's travel. If for these return travels, can be a, a form of conspicuous consumption. It can be a, a way of saying, "Oh, well, look what I did, but you haven't done." And it's like getting a sports car and showing it off to your friend. If 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 you're taking this with the wrong spirit. I think Adam Smith's observation may have been a little bit – I don't know if jealousy is the right word, Mm. but I think travelers – aristocratic travelers came back to Britain – with a willingness to break the rules because they saw that other con- that people, things were done differently in other cultures and they would sort of push the mores of their own society. Uh, and, and, and in a certain sense, travels, travelers, return travelers can, can push back against certain stereotypes that people have back home. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, you don't want to flaunt your travels like it's a new Maserati sports car. You want to find a humble way to engage the conversation that you had with other places to the conversation you have at home with this place that used to be very familiar and is now, a foreign place is now the new destination on your itinerary. And it's it's not that different, but it's different because you've seen other places, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So I think a lot of people might think if you're a world traveler like yourself, you know, they would live in some big cosmopolitan cool city when they're not traveling. But you live in a, in a small town in Kansas. Why did you choose that for your home base instead of some other cool town or city?
0: Well, a a couple big reasons. One is is what's called geo-arbitrage. I think you've talked about it before on this podcast, the idea that some places are cheaper than others, and that you can sort of make yourself wealthier if your daily expenses are less than they were in another place. And so Kansas is a place that's just a lot less expensive than big cities in the United States. And so I was able to save money, but I was also to be close to my family. I'm from Kansas. My sister- lives less than two miles from where I'm talking to you right now. My parents until recently very lived very close and they still live uh, within a half an hour of me. And I actually learned that from travel. I, I realized that of all the values or the commonalities that we see around the world, family is a huge one. And people make decisions to live near family all over the world. And so weirdly enough, I had to go away from home to realize how important home was. And I think I really identified that Kansas part of myself. So in addition to saving money by getting land and having a day-to-day life that is much cheaper than if I was in a hip city someplace. It allows me to be close to my family in a way that I've seen people in, in distant lands be close to their family and and really enrich my life in ways that I saw it enriching people's lives in places like Africa and Asia and, and Europe and, and South America. So it's been a fun dovetailing of sort of enhancing my relationship with my family while also living more cheaply than I would in a more fashionable part of the United States.
1: And as you mentioned, you... You can still find adventure even in Kansas. Like you and your wife went on that trip, walked to the little Sweden. I think I've seen billboards for that when I'm on I-70, I think. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, we've had Alistair McIntyre, and you talk about him in the book, this idea of micro-adventures. You don't have to travel super long distances to foreign countries to get this experience of travel. You can do this in your own state and get a similar experience.
0: Yeah, Al- Alistair Humphreys is his name, actually. Yeah, Alistair, Alistair McIntyre is a philosopher. Alistair Humphreys, okay. right. Yeah, no, he invented, he was, he was uh, as, a, as a young guy, he had these amazing adventures. He like rode across the Atlantic and he walked across India and he did these amazing travels in Africa. But as he had kids and grew older, he found that he, he sort of redefined his idea of adventure. And he realized that when he was at home, being a family man, he didn't have to cut adventure out of his life. If he went out and climbed a tree, or if he slept in his backyard, or if he went to a pub two towns over and talked to strangers in the same way he did on the other side of the world. So I love this concept of micro-adventures because it allows you, in a very specific way, to take that attitude of travel home. To say, yeah, I could go to the movies or the mall or hang out with my friends or stare at my computer this weekend, but no, I'm gonna go on this walk. I'm gonna drive to a town 50 miles away that I've never been to and experience it for the first time and really embrace that adventurous attitude in a way that I give myself permission to in a distant place, but I have—I don't always give myself permission to do at home. Yeah, and I think you can see, like, a,
1: there you can—you can experience culture shock even in your own state. I've always been struck by this whenever our family travels west. We've gone through the Panhandle of Oklahoma, which is just flat. I mean, it looks kind of like Kansas in the western part of Kansas. Super flat. You look around, and it's just miles and miles and miles of fields and cotton fields. And you'll get into these towns. Um, and you go to like to the Teuton Totem, because of what these small towns have. And you, you see the people there, and i I can tell like these people they see the world differently than I do, even though I'm just four or five hours away from them.
0: yeah, well, having having road trip through the panel before, there's a university out there that's like has like twenty national championships and university rodeo. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: I think I know what you're talking about, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've never stopped there. Maybe I should. But it, this is just a part of the country that takes pride in being like, as Alabama is to college football, this part, I think it's in Guyman, in Oklahoma, this little college takes pride in rodeo in a way that some people take pride in football, right? That's cool. And so, yeah, I think— Oftentimes, the landscape or the culture of a specific place will differ from town to town. Even, even on our walk here in Kansas, you know, every town has a little bit of a different character. It has different restaurants and businesses and, and attitudes, and that can happen anywhere. So yeah, I think next time I go through the Oklahoma panhandle, I'm going to have to investigate this uh, national championship rodeo team.
1: The thing I want to investigate in Kansas is whenever we drive through there. I think I don't know if it's like on the way up on I thirty five or I. I think it might be I seventy. There's this really tiny, tiny town, but there's this giant Catholic cathedral there. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's the Cathedral of the Plains. There, there's there's several famous cathedrals here. There's a, a beautiful cathedral in a town called Demar, which was built by like Quebecois French people in the in the eighteen seventies. And it's amazing. You go in there, and it's it's like a junior varsity version of a church you would see in Paris, right? It's architecturally beautiful, but it's in this little, very underpopulated town in western Kansas. And you drive less than an hour in the other direction, you stop in Nicodemus Town, which Nicodemus, which was settled by African Americans in the 1870s and 1880s, and it now has a national uh, landmark there. And so... Yeah, yeah, actually, talking about permission to do things and pretext to stop, that's a great way, that's a great um, pretext to stop. I stopped, my wife and I stopped in DeMar, Kansas to see that cathedral, and we walked around the town. We found out that the, the mascot of the high school is called the DeMartians, right? <laughs> the <This, this> space <laughs> alien called the DeMartian. And so so it was delightful to, to use that as a pretext. In that part of Kansas also, too, there's the world's second largest ball of twine in Cocker City, and there's a little art town called, uh, called Lucas, which is sort of the Folk art capital of Kansas, and it 's this weird little artsy community that just on this dried up part of the the high plains, and that 's in one tiny little part of Kansas, a place I admittedly know pretty well and often, as a traveler in distant places, I try to remind myself how even a place that doesn't seem like it has much going for it, like Western Kansas can and so if I 'm in a boring part of, of of Thailand or South Africa or Bolivia. I remind myself how much there is to see in a place like Western Kansas and and I try to adjust accordingly.
1: Well, Rolf, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? They
0: can go to RolfPots.com It has links to everything, all my books and podcasts and articles I've written over the years, or go to the local bookstore. I try to encourage people to go to their local independent bookstore and you can ask for it there. If they don't have it, they can order it in. Uh, But yeah, in the online world, you can find me at RolfPots.com and sort of follow the rabbit holes from there. Fantastic. Well, Rolf Potts, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Good talking to you, Brett. My guest today was Rolf Potts. He's the author of the book, The
1: Vagabond's Way. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, rolfpotts.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is vagabond, where you find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS, and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us your review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on listening to AOM Podcast but put what you've heard into action.
0: family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.